Sonic Interventions, a podcast by Intervening Arts. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Sonic Interventions. Today, we are recording live from Johannesburg, South Africa, more precisely Wits University at the CRM Performance Department, whom we thank for their support. I am Dr. Laila Zami, currently here for the Performance Studies International Conference number 28. Today, I am delighted to welcome our special guest, Dr. Tokozani Mtlambi. He's a South African musician and cultural pioneer who plays the Baroque cello, sings and composes his own music. He was born in KwaZulu-Natal and received a PhD in music at the University of Cape Town after studying folk music and dark rose in Sweden, among others. He has studied and performed internationally with recent residencies in Bayreuth, Germany and Paris, France. I invite you to read more about his biography in the show notes of this episode. Saubona, how are you today? Saubona, Leila. Thank you for inviting me onto this uh, sound Sonic Interventions platform. And greetings to your listeners in the ether. Greetings. Thank you for your time today. So we would like to start with your Zulu song cycle, which was released on Mountain Records in 2019. It is an impressive cycle of 15 songs in which you use vocals, cello, and traditional strings, instruments from South Africa, such as the Nguni music bows, which reminds me a little bit of the berimbau in the diaspora, right? So you have multiple timbres that you use, and I believe these are many are your own compositions as well as other compositions by other composers. So can you tell us a bit more about this project and also maybe about the blend of tradition and innovation, or maybe could we say tradition as innovation? That's a very, very good question. I like that question because, you know, when you go into your chamber to produce a body of work and you kind of come out of it, you don't always know what people receive from it versus your own intention. And so for me, that body of work came out from a, a persistent intellectual problem which had to do with my own footing and my own place in the traditions that I was being inducted into through the practice of music pedagogy and through the practice of scholarship as well. And so I always sensed that there was something, to use Chinua Achebe's phrase, there was a gap in the bookshelf. This bookshelf gap needed to be filled up with other stories, other perspectives and other ways of doing things. And so the problem, the intellectual problem, is, is an intellectual problem precisely because as you are doing it, it kind of feels that you are transgressing something. At the same time as well, it brings up all the traumas of, around validation, which are the hallmarks of the kind of guild-based way in which classical musicians have been taught for many centuries and are still taught today where it's kind of like you go to a special teacher who's known with a famous teacher or whatever, and then you go to this teacher and then they impart to you their wisdom through this technical thing, but it's your relationship with the, this guru that inspires you and makes you the best musician. And so when in the absence of such gurus or feeling that such a guru is not actually speaking your own language, then you have to make your own guru, mm -hmm. even if that's a muse. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to 
speak into that and lean into that fear that I would feel when I would now put down my etudes and scales of my classical repertoire and then I would quietly steal away on my cello in the middle of the night to play these weird things that I didn't know myself where they were coming from. And so then when I began to go into the folk music of Southern Africa, which I discovered not by some kind of family background or anything like that, but I discovered it in a rather formal sense of the archive. It came from me having inherited this classical discipline and then now coming in and teaching myself through the archive and saying, what can be found out? So through that experience, it got me really to connect with particular performers, particular singers who were important voices in the archive of Southern African music and who are also cultural brokers in some way. Because when we talk of women such as Nofini Shidwili from the Eastern Cape and we talk of women such as Princess Makoko in KwaZulu-Natal, you are talking not only about because uh, the language around African music, when it speaks about this woman, it says this is, uh, the language is usually about a dying culture mm-hmm. and a, a vanishing culture and where this is the last person who's able to do this in the world. But actually, in, in terms of the creative critical practice, when you look at how these women were developing their work they were largely self-styled. And the self-styling came from a kind of eclecticism based on what was around that situation. And their biggest accomplishment was their ability to enroll a community mm-hmm. around their practice. And so we see with Nofinishi really particularly that she introduced and brought in these women who were singing umgokolo. Mm-hmm. which is a, a kind of resonant overtone singing that is done in different parts of Southern Africa, called by different names. Uh, others call it Uchocha, others call it Upoloha, mm-hmm. others call it Umgokolo. And it usually involves the guttural kind of productions of sound using uh, quite the deeper tones available in the human voice. And so when I'm thinking about these women and you're looking at someone like Princess Makoko as well, you then begin to realize that she was not only producing this, but she was actively involved in a community of other people who invested in this practice that she was developing and who she would consult mm-hmm. and collaborate with mm-hmm. or corroborate with. And so for her, her situation is somewhat different from not finished because she was born into royalty. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of royal space in which she's in, but she's very much growing up in a royal space that is already on shaky grounds mm-hmm. because the Zulu state mm-hmm. by that time is already fractured, is already broken, is already undermined.
So what she is doing is then beginning to revive something that she sees as an important continuity between the old and the new, which then she styles herself as the medium on which mm -hmm. this process is going to happen. And so just if I may, this is so interesting, thank you. So you found some music that you found interesting in the archive, but you made arrangements then. In addition, you have your own compositions in the cycles. Yeah, I would say that the kind of understanding that I got from having dwelt in the archive then led to a variety of permutations, some of which then was my desire to also contribute to the certain folk songs being redone and done and done in many versions and having my footprint also as part of that group of mm -hmm. the many musicians, whether it's Miriam Makeba who's done Ikrika Lendela and every other musician who comes and does Ikrika Lendela will do it and say okay cool I also want to take my claim in this kind of so yeah there's a little bit of that in Zulu Song Cycle and then there's other things which I just simply had to go into the studio not prepared for and those things also kind of worked out in some ways by my second project my because that was my debut project my sophomore project is more daunting for me because it's now saying I've done that I've done the looking at the archive and now I'm trying to now make this speak to this contemporary situation but which is also radically changing whether it's through me hearing I'm a piano mm -hmm. on a taxi going home I'm affected by those the cultures that are around me. I'm affected by hearing I'm a piano in Berlin mm -hmm. and, and trying to figure out what is going on here mm -hmm. and why is, is there this interest in South African sounds and South African voices, mm -hmm. South African music. You know, when I was in Paris, one of the biggest songs that was very popular at that time was Jerusalem. Yes. <laughs> And so now you can imagine my confusion sitting in the fourth arrondissement of Paris in my fifth story up a flat and then hearing these youngsters with Bluetooth speakers walking to the river and playing Jerusalem. Yeah, yes. Look, why am I hearing Zulu in Paris? <laughs> I love that. You know, Paris is my hometown. And so this is bringing us to the other project that I had a question about. So talking about uh, portable speakers, in 2020, you created a commission work for Savi Contemporary in Berlin, right? Which was dealing with the legacy of Halim el-Dab, who is a seminal Egyptian composer and philosopher and a precursor in the field of electronic music at the time when sampling and other practices were not so popular in the West or what is now known as the avant-garde, right, in the Western context. And you did this project called Playing With Tape where you mentioned in, I read text that you wrote or interviews you gave where you said that you drew from your own experience of moving through urban spaces with portable radios. And you mentioned in one text that these experiences 
these portable radios that they changes the way you listen or maybe other would listen. So I wonder if you want to comment on that about maybe other ways of listening in relationship to these practices and more specifically this project also maybe how it relates to connections between the self and the public space maybe. Yeah, that project for me was partly inspired by previous research I'd done on an era in South African broadcasting which is little known about which was in a short era of loudspeaker broadcasting. This was broadcasting that was transmitted on telephone lines and these loudspeakers would then be erected in certain kinds of public spaces and where then African subjects would be addressed. They would be addressed by some government official about the Second World War. I then thought about what it meant at that moment in time because at that time when they were speaking in Isizulu, over the loudspeaker, there was no sense of precedence. And so they were not only speaking to a Zulu audience, but they were also invoking a Zulu audience into life through that practice of hailing on loudspeakers and the sense that this sound could breach because whether one wanted to listen to it or not, they would have to move And one of the authors who speaks about this from an Egyptian perspective, looking at the Islamic tapes that would circulate around Cairo, then thinking about how people configure their spaces, their urban spaces, acoustically as well, based on sounds they want to hear and sounds they don't want to hear. Whether it's people who don't want to live near an airport or people who don't want to live near a mosque, or people want to live close to a certain type of noise because it calls it, it interpolates and, and, and calls a particular kind of response from them. And so I decided to now parade myself with a, a tape recorder and put it on my shoulder, just like we used to do with the ghetto blasters in the 1980s and 1990s. So they, I shouldered the radio And then I walked through the streets of Durban, particularly by the beach, and awaited responses. And the responses became what becomes the the artwork because the responses, some of them were people who wanted to specifically insert themselves into that. And I don't know why they felt that something as random as a, a radio was something important for them to be heard in, but they specifically inserted themselves in that. And this one woman kept on singing to me some songs from the repertoire of hymns sung by the Shembe, Nazareth Church. And so finding this woman who was singing, and the song was about Unyazi. And Unyazi in Zulu is a, a bolt of lightning. And so this bolt of lightning and Unyazi thing began to connect me with the ideas of Halim el-Dab, because this idea of lightning is very important for Halim al-Dab in his thinking about sound and community practice. And so I listened to that tape from the 1940s by Halim al-Dab where he recorded some kind of a ritual practice that was being done by women in a square. And he felt that this was best captures or exemplifies the sound of the space. And I wanted to do something similar with my own background. But then what you find is that Southern Africa, in terms of history, 
isn't characterized by strong, centralized religious institutions, unlike perhaps in parts of North Africa where there's, as, or West Africa where there's stronger connections to Islam that go back to the Middle Ages and things like that. And so I felt that there was something else, though, that happens a lot in Southern Africa around the ocean and the beach. People doing rituals by the beach, either cleansing rituals. So you see, you find a lot of diviners, and it's what we call the Izangoma, who go to the ocean. You find people who are prophets and prayers and what are called abatandazi who go and do practices there. And you find people who just want to walk on the beach and be seen. And so that beach space, at the same time, has become very contested because of the idea of presence of African bodies because there was something that was delegitimized in apartheid that made restricted black presence around the beach space, around ocean spaces. And so having people respond from that kind of environment, which, which is an part spiritual, mm-hmm. but part lifestyle, mm-hmm. part a claim to just the landscape, and thinking about how that could then be captured acoustically in a way that allows people even in future to reflect on this important practice of listening. Thank you. And this makes me think of, as you know, so this podcast and also a whole research project is called Sonic Interventions. And so from listening to you, I wonder... Would you define this project or maybe you work in general as an intervention? And if yes, or maybe we can take the question further about the role of music, the way people have been relating to music, especially performing music with their voices, with their bodies. In the history of South Africa, with the history of apartheid, music has always maybe been some kind of intervening force. Yeah, What would you say about that? I think so. I think you're absolutely right. Sound as intervention is definitely, and I like that you said sound as intervention rather than music as intervention, because I think the range that sound offers is far more liberating for me, particularly also from a kind of decolonial sense where certain kinds of sounds that didn't fit the Western framework of music were called non-music. And so trying to think of these sounds and bracket them into the realm of music or bracket them into the realm of sonic intervention is one of our aims. But also sonic intervention is about a, for me, a vibrational frequency because when you look at the way in which the ancient Greeks thought about musicals and the ideas around musicals and how they then began to develop the genus, I hesitate to call it a scale because it's not a scale, but them being able to understand that as related to the atmospherics, as it related to certain kinds of tensions, then they figure out through poetic text and things like that. For me, the intervention is about taking that vibrational frequency which suddenly someone catches someone unaware and they're like, oh my gosh, actually music is bigger than what we thought it was. Or rather that there's particular ways of moving that is available in the apparatus of sound and the apparatus of music that is not readily mobilizable in the realm of commercial entertainment music. And so sometimes we can act like we're doing entertainment music just to, but we're actually not doing that. We just do it because the commercial framework kind of thinks that's what it should be. But actually, if you know that there's a reason 
more than that of your music. If you know that actually this is about healing, then you believe that intention is always lodged into that work and is available for future generations because it's not just about Apple Music now or TikTok now. Yes, that might happen to be the most common way people consume music today. But there is also deeper listening. There's much more invitation to, if you think of ideas of people like uh, young composers, like young, you know, who really placed an emphasis on, on length, you know, believed there was something that was there in a piece of music being five hours long. By it being five hours, the listener was able to discover something else that they were not able to discover in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. So uh, intervention is also about that because in a world that is trying to claim our time and say your time is actually not available for music, it's available for driving in traffic, it's available for traffic, um, and maybe a, a few minutes for you to put teaspoons of food in your children's mouth, but the rest of it is for the capitalist beast. <laughs> yeah, it really rings a bell when you say that because I feel like, especially in the art sector, there's a pressure to always create something new every year, to always yeah, watch the time. And we live in a time in acceleration anyway, as you mentioned, so there's something special about reclaiming time through music. So it makes me think of your latest musical production. I don't know how long the work is. It's called Hail to the King, a musical story. And I read that actually also this project, it's the fruit of a research that you took your time to do, right? It took you several years mm. to work on this project. So do you want to tell us more about this and also maybe about the fact that it's a shift from you working in solo to having your music arranged for an ensemble? Yeah, um, it might be a shift, I think, for people who perceive me as maybe... A, having been defined in the one project that I did, I'm, I'm definitely sure that before I recorded that project, I was playing with many other musicians and many collaborators and many community practitioners. When I grew up, you know, in the environment I grew up in, in Matateni, in Guazul-Natal, I remember that whenever you would sing a song, the community would begin to join you. So them joining you was not that they are now taking away your, the lights of you was in front, but it was the only way they knew to respond mm -hmm. to music, to mm -hmm. respond to sound. And so when you come from that kind of culture and then suddenly now you are told, hush, keep quiet, this is a concert hall, no cell phones and, and all that. And whereas my perception might be that so if I'm not celebrating this song in this moment, then I've, I've done an injustice to the song. I've done an injustice to the moment because I didn't go now and not be looked at by the other woman. They're like, oh, she's disrupting the performance. Oh, he's making a noise for us and we want to enjoy what's there in front. But my presence compels me to respond if it wasn't about my presence, then perhaps you should do it alone. Mm -hmm. You should have your performance on your own. And maybe it has to do with also a difference between in the Western sense of always being in the consumption mode, right? So in the, the setting you're describing, the listener sits in the audience, is consuming in a way what the artist has to offer and it goes only one way, let's say. And the other mode that you're describing is the interaction 
it's a sharing, right? It's maybe co-created. So it's less an extractivist notion in the sense that, of course, the artist is offering and doing a musical offering, maybe spiritual offering, but there is something that comes back, right? There's an energy that's being exchanged. Right? No, absolutely. And as you are saying that about that experience that is being given back, but the sense also that this method of I'm in front and I'm dispensing and therefore you should just listen to me has a long culture in the West around expertise, around the power to speak, the power not to speak. What we find is that artists tend to be incorporated into this strange technology of expertise or somehow being able to have a particular kind of wisdom in the sonic practice that is not available to others. Mm -hmm. But that is not always the actual case because even you mentioned before about whether these are compositions or these are other people's compositions or whether music that we call folk music is not just that as soon as it comes from Africa, we call it folk music, even when it was actually composed by someone. And so this idea that therefore because we do communal music, that means we're always inscribed in a communal apparatus mm -hmm. is also a misnotion. Just because we are part of a community doesn't mean also I suddenly stop being an individual or that there's no kind of individual initiative. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the modern society, on the other hand, the way in which the recording industry is, is, is and the way in which intellectual property is mobilized, it gives the sense that intellectual property is one having shut themselves in an isolated room and suddenly come up with a brilliant idea and that this is not influenced by any community or any practice that is outside of that. Well, thank you so much. And so I wonder, do you just want to share what the Hail to the King is about? Just a brief synopsis of what the story is about for people who want to, who are curious. And yeah, hopefully there will be many occasions for you to perform this latest work. Yes, I, uh, I certainly hope uh, everyone who hears this recording will be able to hear the work. Hail to the King is a work that comes from me having been part of a, a research group that with a group of archaeologists and historians and visual artists who went to visit the ancient capital of one of the early Zulu kings, Dingane Gassenzangakon. And so what you find with Dingane is that, firstly, he is not the king that is widely spoken about as much as his brother, Shaka Zulu. Mm -hmm. So I found being able to pause on Dingane very important because I wasn't then also stuck with the burden of that image, that colonial writing developed a discourse around being Zulu and the prowess of Shaga mm -hmm. as a king. Thank you so much for sharing all these precious thoughts with us today. Siabonga. Siabonga Kulu, I really enjoyed it.
the time has come for a new sensation of life. 